Hello and welcome to another episode of Conversations Beyond the Pew and the conversation today happening beyond the pew actually happening with another reverend but a little bit different and so Chris Hollum, Hallum? Yeah. Hallum. there we go, Hollum. <laughs> thank you for joining me today. Uh, it's, a, it's a joy to be here so thank you for asking. Yeah so in today's episode we're So Chris and I are both of the creative mind and really all about innovation. And she actually has gone much further. She has an art degree, uh, which I don't, I, I, I always thought, eh, I'm not creative at all growing up, um, which is weird today. But, uh, I just wanted to, to discuss this creativity, the process, some of the cool things that you're doing in your context, what kind of fuels you. Uh, mm-hmm. in that. And I don't know, let's see where the conversation goes. Um, so talk a little bit about your background in creativity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I come from a family of creatives in different ways. So my grandmother was very, uh, on my father's side was the very classic uh, painter and um, drawer, has has a very creative um, life be- in in just her being like she's the person you walk in the room and you see her flowing clothes and you're like that's a creative person um but because being a depression era child um having growing up in the working class she never got to fully express it and so she was one of the key people that nurtured it in me actually because my cut we were at the grandparents house and my cousins were making fun of me so my grandmother sought me out, pulled me aside and wanted to spoil me. So the, at age five, she gave me a sketchbook and just like draw. Uh, I'm not giving this to any of your other cousins, just you, you are special, you need to draw. And that I have basically kept a sketchbook and I, I haven't thrown any of them away because it feels sacrilegious and I don't know what to do with the sketchbooks now, but I have all my drawings from basically age five year old, five years and on. Um, on my mom's side, there was a more like traditional crafty creativity um, that goes through her side of the family, which we had the two old aunts of the family. Uh, one would pattern uh, both clothing and quilts and the other sister would sew them and they would go back and forth together with its design and execution in more of a, um, that like textile craft side that isn't always lifted up as like fine art. And so I got a mash of both sides with like this technical, uh, like I can draw a figure drawing and it be mostly proportionally accurate, but one of my favorite avenues that I've been exploring now is actually back to the textile side of things. I actually do like, I I spin wool into yarn. I'm a huge crocheter. Um, And it's fun to see my sister has, uh, I have an older sister, two years older than me, and we're very close and our art journeys are very similar where we have the technical training and going into unusual areas now. And so she is a weaver um, and does things with textiles in a different way, also a great photographer. And so it's basically, I 
have done art since five years old just because I needed that creative output and it was entirely selfish. Um, I needed to like put my energy into something and cr creating a product gets to be addicting in the end. Um, and so I basically got an art degree because I needed to process my own emotions and that was the avenue that had been given to me at age five years old from my grandma. Wow, that's really cool uh, that she that she fueled that in you from a very early age and that it even develops now in all kinds of ways. Yeah. And with, do you find that you use going back to textiles, which means the feel mm -hmm. so that you're using, you're trying to engage all of your senses? Oh, entirely. Um, the one that so I took a class in college that was bookmaking and it's by far my favorite art class that I took and it, we learned the traditional Italian style binding and the stitching together and the like folding the paper and the and all of that but what I fell in love with was the fact that bookmakers and when it bridges less into just the mundane I need to make a journal to write in but making it into a piece of art became all about like what's the quality of the paper how does the paper feel are you able to interact with it is it a piece of art that is meant to be played with and it brings it out of just like a three-dimensional space into like time um you know dimensional theory uh it brings it into the fourth dimension where it's meant to be interacted with or else you're actually not seeing a full piece of the art and so one of my favorite books that I made was actually in a hat box. It, it, like I found a Salvation Army hat box, cut out a thing at the bottom of it, made an accordion folded book, attached it to both the bottom and the lid. And so you only see the book if you take the hat box apart and spread it. And it means it's all about the experience of it. It's meant to be handled. It's meant to be touched. And it's, uh, it's why museums can feel so sterile is you're not, I mean, of course you don't want to touch the paintings. That will destroy the paintings, but there's a engagement sometimes now of museums that you can actually go into and feel and touch and play because that brings just a whole nother round of senses um, into the forefront that we are more than just a set of eyes, basically. So, in thinking about what you do as a pastor and you mm -hmm. lead worship, and especially right now when we're in the middle of a pandemic and we're not really meeting in person or it's been somehow it's different um, than what mm -hmm. we're used to, how are you um, engaging people's senses now? What are you paying attention to in how you are leading worship or how you are in just in general engaging people mm -hmm. if one of the drawbacks to an art museum is that it's all visually based a classic problem that i've seen throughout most churches is that it is so reliant on only the auditory we say a lot of words we have people respond with words and we sing songs and the only tactical thing we get to do is pass an offering plate or like play an instrument if you're one of the lucky few that get to do that. Now we are being forced to contend with the fact that the visual 
is inherently part of the service. Um, there's no getting around it. Uh, so many people are online right now. And so we're having to think about it. Now, it was always important before, beforehand, we just didn't think about it. Our sanctuaries communicate theology, whether we want it to or not. Even the fact that we have pews and like our books are stored under the pew says something about the orderliness that we expect from God. Um, people wearing robes says something about what we think about God. Uh, just how we design spaces, whether it's a Gothic cathedral says one thing, or a casual contemporary service with modern paintings on the walls says something else. Like all of this communicates a visual theology. But I feel like right now is the first time we're truly having to contend with that in a new way. So when I, one of the first things that I'm thinking about when designing a sermon isn't just the words that I'm saying. It's not just my word theology that I'm throwing out there, but what is my visual theology? What is my place theology? And so I don't inherently have one space that I film from um, because I want the visual to be incorporated into the sermon. And so some of my favorite sermons I've been preaching have been uh, field trips. I actually filmed yesterday, I went to Mayberry State Park because my sermon, the, the illustration for it was Mayberry State Park. And so because we're, we're released from having to be in the sanctuary, it allows us to actually be where we are telling stories. It has a place that you can then engage with. So as I'm talking about my experience, I used to work there, and it's a, uh, about fundraising, and but I'm like interacting with the park in the sermon, so it allows a um, it allows just a whole new level of creativity when you release yourself from having to be in one spot wearing a robe um, when you're restricted in time of day and what's going on outside. I mean, another sermon which was another favorite one. I I've just moved into a house. And I used me going into the house for the first time as my sermon illustration. I literally was going through an empty house talking about um, make, like having our bodies be a home for God. And it's one of these things that we, like, yes, we're restricted to online in a certain way, but that, does, but that allows us to do so much more. Um, there's so many more dimensional things that um we can engage with different questions of how we're designing sermons what are we talking about are we talking about things that we can physically show and are we actually using the tools that are now available because some tools are taken away but we've been given so many more that is so cool to even think about i'm like okay hmm what am mm -hmm. i going to do and it and I think that that's one of the things about having conversations with people who are doing things differently mm. because then you're able to bring it. Um, we were talking before we started about how you fuel yourself with different things. And yeah. so because you have, uh, you put stuff in that has nothing to do with the church or something that you're doing, it then somehow seeps in in new and creative ways. And so what are the ways that you fuel 
your creativity? Mm -hmm. What are the things you're paying attention to reading, watching, just doing in general? Yeah. So one of the things, if we think that God is not working outside of our Christian bubble, then we have a very narrow opinion of God and what God's power is. So I remember wrestling as like a young person of, because it was in the, I remember this poster in my youth group and it's like, do you listen to this secular band? Well, here's this Christian band that you can replace it with. Um, and yeah, no. it, I mean, they were like, you can't replace the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I'm sorry. There's no Christian equivalent. There's just not going to be. Um, and I really actually don't like Christian music. Um, I just don't think it's the same quality. I, I will be honest. I, it has its place and I, I respect that. But like listening to secular music actually gives you a litmus test to like, what people are thinking and feeling in the world. And so honestly, even just listening to music that's coming out these days is kind of a, a window into what people are struggling with, what peop where people's minds are. And so I, I'm a huge music fan and just listening to that is in its own way theological work. I have what I consider like my open canon scriptures, quote unquote, uh, I have the poets that I go to that some of their words are like, I hold as dear to me as some of the things in scripture. So it's like my Chris Hallam scripture. I won't say that it's scripture for anyone else. Um, people like Buddy Wakefield and Andrea Gibson and Anise Machgani. Those are like my three, like read these poets and consider new avenues of where God is working in the world. Even if they're don't like the church, that's actually one of the things that, is, is part of my pastoral identity almost is looking to people who don't like the church and asking why. Um, but otherwise, I mean, when creating a visual language, like one of the biggest things I can say is get on YouTube for whatever subject you like and watch what YouTubers are doing. I love it's costume is the is the name for it. It's um, I historical cosplay, or historical dress things like that, and it has nothing to do with church. And I love seeing people recreate historical garments in traditional ways. And but you start to get a um, the visual grammar of how people are putting things together and how they're communicating ideas. Um, I I mean. I, my other like geek out moment is film analysis. I am a film buff. I love watching film analysis. Um, and it just, once again, it's seeing what people are wrestling with, what people are interested in, what are the conversations that are having, and do you have anything to add into it as well? Um, so it's, I can spend hours on YouTube, but I feel it's not just mindless watching. If you are paying attention to both what they are saying and how they say it. That is so excellent. <laughs> I mean, and if there's YouTube about anything, I mean, uh, my partner, he watches uh, YouTube videos on guitars and computer building. And you can see they have a language that's different than my costume YouTubers, which is different than my film analysis. Um, there, I mean, if you are interested in anything, 
um, and you want to put on online worship, like do your research. Like watching YouTube videos nowadays for worship is doing research. You need to research what is being done well, not just what church services are being done well, but what YouTube channels are doing well. There's a reason why Markiplier uh, has been so successful over basically the entirety of the existence of YouTuber. He's doing something that's connecting with people and how he communicates things is, is an effective tool of communication. We need to understand what those tools are. Well, and this could be for any topic, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether it's church or whatever somebody's finding themselves in, mm -hmm. you know, we're more and more, we are a visual society. Mm -hmm. And how are we conveying messages, uh, no matter what our work is in? Really, mm -hmm. um, that it, it's something about... Well, and we see this, right, as more and more people branch into personal brands and, oh. and all kinds of things are, are centered around how are we getting messages out, how are we branding the business that I own, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's kind of, it's fascinating how something that we think has no connection to us actually fuels us and makes whatever we are doing, it, it like levels us up. Mm -hmm. So in your creativity, what are some barriers that you find or that you run up against at different times? Mm. One of, I think one of them that I know I hit it time and again is stress management. Um, because now, I mean, there is always going to be deadlines, no matter what work you do. But knowing that, I mean, doing church services, the deadline is every week. And the moment you've put one thing out there, it's time to do the next one. And getting used to that kind of treadmill thing where you can't really focus too much on what you did last week uh, because it's filming day again and you haven't polished off the, the sermon idea that you have. Um, if you get, I mean, and if you trip up once, you're, you're like behind schedule and you're running to catch up and then you're tired for the next week and trying to break the tired cycle of constantly doing things. Um, and I find stress to be one of the biggest inhibitors to creativity. So like, honest to goodness, I had like a sheer month of like treading water, trying to keep up, trying to do decent things that I thought were interesting, but not taking rest. And so like it, it piles up. So when I don't, when I'm stressed about filming, I will stutter more when I talk, which means my editing process is worse because then I have to re like, I have a few goes at every single one and I'm trying to take out the stutters and all of the ums and is and so's and all of that, which makes me more tired because I'm spending more time and you see how it just escalates. So I was able to catch up, get my work done at a manageable space. And all of a sudden this week, it being one of the weeks or my second week in the row that I've actually kept my filming schedule, all of a sudden I've had a flood of new ideas and just creativity things that are just coming from nowhere. Cause 
for better or for worse, my brain just like bloop, and they, I have some ideas that I don't even know what to do with um, because I can't act on them immediately. And so I'm trying to get something long-term things in the works for going so I don't have to do the creative work later. And so it's like that stress management so the creativity doesn't feel forced. Um, so you don't feel backlogged. So you don't feel like someone saying like, dance monkey, dance, do the creative thing again, do the creative thing again, because it just, it, that will make it come to a complete standstill. Well, and you hear other creatives talk in similar ways about that of making like quiet time uh, and, mm -hmm. and how all of a sudden, if you're not focused upon something, your brain will start to make connections and it can fuel that creativity. Uh, I actually keep a notebook. I always have a notebook on me mm -hmm. and I date and then write down the brainstorm as it just comes. Um, and sometimes I go back to it and sometimes I'm like, oh, well, that was fun <laughs> and move on. Uh, but it's amazing, especially um, a couple of times I've noticed that a few months ago I had this idea and that all of a sudden I have months later come back to it and figured it out, like figured mm -hmm. out how to, how to do it. Um, it, it's kind of, it, and it's hard and especially I think our society to not put too much pressure on to be creative. Otherwise, as you're saying, like it just, it takes it out. The stress of it takes it out. Mm -hmm. So what philosophy kind of directs you in your creativity? Oh, that's a question I haven't exactly encountered. One of the things that it took me a while to understand about my creativity that is something that once again is necessary for it to thrive is the importance of boundaries. It's interesting to say like, ah, I don't want no, I don't want any rules. I want to do anything I want. I want just free reign so my creativity can go wild. Um, very often a art student in college's uh, chorus of like, I want to do what I want, not what the instructor is telling me to do. But in fact, that structure is one of the most important things because when you have all the time in the world, when you have access to all the resources, when there is literally no limits, there is nothing for you to push up against for your creativity. That if nothing else, like prompts that my professors would give me to do some of the work, were good just to have something to say, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do this other thing. Um, and that restricting whether it, it's a painting and you're restricting how many colors you use, whether it's a worship service and you're intentionally tying a hand behind your back to see what your creativity muscles can pull up, the limiting yourself is actually creativity's best friend because then you have, um, you have parameters in which to work. Um, you, so when, when, address, when going at a new project, one of the first things I will always do is test my boundaries. I want to know where the edges are. I want to know where people are going to say no, because until I know that boundary, I don't actually know what I'm working with. So 
um, like one of the things and uh, I joke about is with, I was helping uh, Kirk in the Hills build their alternative service. And for the life of me, I couldn't find the boundary and I didn't know what to do because everything I asked for, they just said yes. And like, if you see paintings where they have all the colors, it looks sloppy. And so I did a, I was like, where, where are you going to give me my pushback? So I know where to work, where I need to toss out, where I need to find some go around. I need some limits. And the only one I found, I was doing a Mardi Gras service. I wanted it to be a full celebration. And so I was telling them I wanted to bring in professional joy experts. And the professional joy experts I thought of were, uh, there's a drag community in Royal Oak. And it was like, this is great. We can build some relationships with the drag community. It's gonna be fun. And they, like, they are joy experts, if nothing else. So can I bring in some drag queens? And that's the only time they told me no. And it's like, I found the boundary that while I'm disappointed that my Barney Gras service doesn't have professional joy experts, they at least gave me a, a barrier I could push up against. I, I knew where their limits are, were, so I could then like step back and see where I could work everywhere else. I really hope that you get to sometimes have your joy experts and from the drag queen community. I really do. That would be amazing. Right? Um, yeah, I feel like I now have a epiphany of sorts for another episode of Conversations Beyond the Pew. Um, <laughs> so I thank you for that. Um, but it is interesting, even when thinking about boundaries that get set if you're planning a worship and, and all of that, you know, with going online, in some ways, we got a lot of boundaries taken off. In other ways, we mm -hmm. got a new boundary put on. I feel like we, we had a new boundary, which is very good for um, a lot of us preachers. Um, people are not going to watch you for that long. Not right. So you need to figure out how to convey your message in a, a much shorter time. Mm -hmm. I mean, the other thing that it's, I, I know I did with the service at Northminster was the fact that it's like, do we need all the elements of worship? Right. Uh, it's like reconsidering like is because yeah like attention is worth money these days like it's notable that like Netflix's biggest competitor that they say they have isn't another streaming channel it's Fortnite mm. that's showing people like what they're what they're bargaining for isn't as much our dollars as much as our time and attention span and so if our attention span is worth money, are we actually respecting people's time that they're giving to an online service? Are we making every moment count that we're putting in front of them? So yeah, can we trim down that sermon? Do you really need that, that sermon illustration? Do you want to spend your time seeing someone walk onto screen that maybe only takes 15 seconds, but that's still time for them to tune out? And I mean, the other thing to consider is the fact that when we're like preaching in like the physical location of the church, when people are bored and tune out, they go to their phones. But now we are on their phones. We want to be the thing that they go to because if they're tuning out while they're watching us on their phones or computers, we lose them entirely. 
in I think you know starting a few years ago because TED Talks have been around mm -hmm. right TED Talks definitely um, offer pastors a lot of good thinking in mm -hmm. how do you convey something that's important that is relevant and that can really get people thinking, challenge them, set them even in a new direction, thinking Brene Brown, in a very short period of time. Like mm -hmm. you've got no more than 20 minutes, what you gonna do? I mean, even for that matter, doing er, like amen, yes, and like, like yes and that to say, should we be releasing our sermons as standalone? Like, do we need it surrounded by a worship service if people are going to TED Talks and they want that 20 minutes and they don't want the rest of the service, is it time that we release both the service and the, like, basically, what's a Christian TED Talk? I know that for a while I have approached my sermons learning from what TED Talks are doing. Like, I want mine to, I, I call it my weekly uh, pep talk, basically. I am a expensive uh, motivational speaker every week. Not really, but tongue in cheek. So I have modified my service mm -hmm. to um, a short prayer at the beginning with some uh, like music being played under me. Mm -hmm. And then I start immediately into the sermon. Really? Yeah. And then I finish at the end. Um, and there's, I, I'll sprinkle a little bit of music in between. Mm -hmm. And then I end with the prayers of the people and a blessing. That's it. And the, that's the high points that people want anyways. So it, it seems to be, um, mm -hmm. that's the, I don't know. And that's what I'm doing outside. I'm pretty much doing, moving that, um, outside. And it seems to be when I'm looking at stuff that gets a lot of plays online, that's what it is. People are like, what, what are you going to give me that helps me? Mm -hmm. For a similar reason, I've been, um, I did it once as a joke. I released a, a worship preview just because it, it was honestly, it was what I had filmed in the sermon and the sermon was going to be 30 minutes long and I knew I couldn't hold them for 30 minutes. So I cut out a chunk and released it as a worship preview and it was maybe five minutes max and it's one of the most successful videos I released. And like, it, so now it's, I mean, yes, it's more work on my part, but people seem to want like a sermon nugget, not maybe the whole worship service, but like, can you summarize your main point in less than three minutes? Go. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Um, my, um, my daily prayers, which are mm -hmm. two to three minutes. Um, I say a tiny bit. I read the piece of scripture that connects to whatever I've just said. I pray. And, and those are probably viewed more than mm -hmm. um, the Sunday sermon. Yeah. So I, I love how, like, like you mentioned a while ago, this like new boundary that we're having to deal with. Mm hmm it's causing like like these are all creative solutions that haven't been worked out before but it's gonna affect us when we go back in person because if you're used to having these like little nugget sized pieces and like sprinkled throughout your day 
um, how does that change when we go back? And that's, I mean, I don't think we have a full answer, but it's one of those that we need to be, um, this is a moment of the spirit trying to teach us things that maybe we've been ignoring and we needed to learn. Um, yeah, yeah. trying to just re, rethink even the, the basic structure of worship because we've had that same like, open with the call to worship with the with the confession and then you do this piece and like that structure hasn't changed in how many years and can most congregants actually tell us why if you haven't been to seminary do you know why we confess as presbyterians like at the beginning of the service do people know why we do confession every time like if we're not actually getting the the meaning behind these things it says to me, we either need to do it better or we need to scrap it and think of another way to get this point across because I don't think it was actually doing much. Yeah, I, th I think maybe you and I have talked previously about that. Like I stopped a few years ago calling it confession and I started mm -hmm. calling it the prayer for letting go. <laughs> that's excellent <laughs> right but even that with going online I've uh, I've done away with that I, I kind of incorporate maybe a piece of it in mm -hmm. into the no more than three sentence prayer you know it, anyway it, it is kind of interesting how everything can now be scrutinized mm -hmm. um, and how I find it freeing uh, to to be rethinking how how we're doing things and what's really the most important here kind of thing. Yeah. Um, what is something that you would say uh, to a person who's like, you know, I'm really struggling with what to do, how to do it, or just even getting started in, in this whole thing of recreating, creating um, with whatever, whether it's in worship or something else. Mm-hmm. So this is the one where I say, if, hmm, there's about five different thoughts that like shot through all at once. <laughs> That's a uh, If you're getting started. So if you're trying to get started, one of the first things to do is pay attention to what you like and what you what you pay attention to. Uh, th like we were talking about earlier, like pay attention. If you watch YouTube, pay attention to what they are doing that you are like, dang, that's good. Like what is, or and part of it is thinking about what is it that you like about the, the way that it's been done? Like actually go through and think about, because um, I know some people where, like one of the biggest heartbreaks of going online is that they want a place that's set aside. And how can we create that set aside-ness if we don't have a physical space? Like what is it that we find valuable? What is it that we, we don't find valuable? And like even going through piece by piece through the service of like, this is like a really cool part. Like what part do you spend the most time on? when creating a service and is it your, are you spending time on it because it's a slog or are you spending time on it because you're excited about it? And I think we just need to like 
to get started, you need to pay attention. Um, so that's number one. And number two, it's like, don't, don't try to overhaul it all at once. I know in getting used to being online, like I have the way I do it now, but I was changing piece by piece. I mean, my first thing that I did online was I, I had to reinstall Facebook onto my phone. I literally like duct taped a selfie stick to a microphone stand and like preached from the church to Facebook. And all it was was a sermon because that's all I could do at the time because I, I like had to change within a day. And so it was actually interesting because that stripped it down to like the bare basics and I've been building it back ever since. But it's one of those that if you change one thing at a time, don't, don't tackle the entire service, tackle one bit. So if you're doing the full liturgy like you were in a like in-person church service, maybe your first thing is like, is there a cool location you could go to film your sermon? Like step one, or is, um, and change it element by element. And because that'll give you a litmus test of like, is, is this going to work for me? Um, and have a bit of playfulness. I mean, I have failed multiple times. It's like, it's awkward because it's on YouTube forever now. And there are some that it's like, that was really bad. That was not effective. Um, but you, you can't take yourself too seriously, especially when like, while being creative, you have to like have that sense of silliness, lower your sense of dignity, and know you're going to make a fool out of yourself. Um, but I, I believe there is some place in scripture, I believe Paul said it, where the foolishness of God is wiser than humans. We need to maybe like be willing to be foolish a little bit more. Um, get that like playfulness back. Um, I know we are in very serious times, but we don't have to take ourselves seriously. And it probably would lower our stress levels if we didn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, I need to like record that and send it back to me on my bad recording days. <laughs> Agreed. Um, I need to say that to myself at other times too. <laughs> um, so that's some really good stuff to, to kind of get us thinking uh, about, you know, how are we redoing? How do we want to start that process? Um, where, yeah, where do we even begin if we're willing? Um, mm -hmm. As this conversation, which I feel like we're probably going to have more conversations, um, but as this conversation comes to a close, mm -hmm. what piece of wisdom do you live by? like your entire life, like what piece of wisdom? So one of the images that I love, um, and I go back to it again and again and again, is that of um, a midwife. Um, I, I, I became a pastor partially because I wanted to be a healer. And this is like the closest thing we can be to a healer anymore is being a pastor and listening to people's struggles and trauma. Um, and just being there to walk beside them. Um, but what the comment that Jesus makes about uh, midwifery is that, or kind of adjacent, is that there is a new world being born, that the, a, a new world is coming into being like a woman in labor, 
which if you think about a first century woman, there is a very real sense of death with every birth, with every new life, there is a chance of death and it's going to be bloody. It's going to be painful, but there is life at the end of it. And every birth, like a woman would have to stare death dead in the face and stare down that reality. And the kingdom of God being compared to birth and first century birth is terrifying. It means that like for us to find new birth in what we are doing, we have to look death in the face. There is going to be tearing, there's going to be blood. It's not always pretty. We like to focus on the cute little baby pictures, but there, I mean, even in America today, like we have a very high mortality rate for mothers giving birth that like birth is not pretty. It is sometimes ugly and messy. And I feel like we are going through that in multiple ways in our time right now. And we are tearing. There is a very real sense that some things are going to have to die for a new world to come into place. And it's terrifying and that's okay. It's okay if you're scared of failure, if you're going to be go online, like, yeah, you're going to have to let some things of the church's traditional in-person service, you're going to have to let it die. And that's okay because we're resurrection people. Um, creativity isn't holding on to everything. It's actually letting some, like, you have to let the bad ideas go. Not everything you're going to have is a good idea. So, like, even as a creative person, you kind of have to put to rest some of your bad ideas. Um, and that's the cycle of, like, the birth and death and life, and it's all messy and mixed together. And, yeah, there's the tearing and the blood and the very real chance that what you're doing isn't going to work but that's okay. I believe that is some wisdom right there <laughs> to live by. Um, and all those who, who know me well, who have listened through that go, oh, isn't Kara super squeamish? Oh, yes, yes, she is. But there is still some wisdom right there. <laughs> no, no, it was good. It was good. Okay, it was good. I'll take that then. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today. And yeah, uh, keep the creativity going. Yeah, it, it was a joy to be on. <laughs> and to all those listening, uh, I hope this fueled some creativity, whether you're in the church or not. Like there, there's something I think here for, for many people. And keep having those conversations and keep trying and being creative and know, you know, some things we got to let go to make room for the new. So have a good one. Thanks.